This week on The Elucidators Decoding Global News, we're checking into the situation in Rwanda, where Paul Rusesa Bagina, the hotel manager whose heroism during the 1994 genocide inspired the Oscar-nominated movie Hotel Rwanda, has been arrested and accused of terrorism. What does this surprising move on the part of authoritarian President Paul Kagame mean for this small country that is sometimes called the Switzerland of Africa, belonging its tragic history? Stick with us, and we'll elucidate. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I am your host, Steve Halley. With me, as always, is my co-host and producer, Pete Newsom. How are you doing, Pete? I almost just called you Sumi, but that would have been wrong. That would have been incorrect. I avoided it. Pete Newsumi, you almost yeah, called me. Yeah, it's a <laughs> Freudian slipperoo right there. In the there. sense that I am a type of new Sumi, maybe that would have been appropriate. Pete <laughs> Newsumi, that's my new name name but um, you're the guy across from me in the zoom window wearing headphones so this is quite true i'm yeah. doing well man thank you excellent yeah. you survived labor day weekend here in the where are we seventh or eighth circle of hell here in southern california <laughs> is there a ninth no it's not that bad third <laughs> it's yeah like it's pretty bad it's pretty bad not the the actual final circle of hell but it's no, terrible no 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 no, no. Yeah, I don't think I even like left the house maybe at all yesterday, except for one thing. But for the most part, I've just been completely staying inside. Yeah, additional color. It's been uh, well over 110 degrees Fahrenheit uh, here in the Southland. Celsius, what is that? That's uh, in your 45 to 47 range, let's call That's it. That's a crazy temperature to be well over. Yeah, well over meaning it was like 119 where I live, 112 where you live. It set records, I believe, all-time oh, yeah. records for this area. It also set some fires, uh, which is what tends to happen nowadays here in California. So we get the triple whammy of unbreathable air, unlivable climate, coronavirus, and I suppose occasional blackouts. So that's actually a quadruple whammy. Man, if we could remove one of those, it'd be so great. Yeah. <laughs> From the <laughs> well, equation. Hopefully it'll get cooler, right? <laughs> I don't know about the other just stuff. Pick one and remove it. At this yeah, point. Just, we're headed towards fall. Yeah, pick one. Coronavirus would be good. That would be yes, good. Start with one. And yeah, also do start with coronavirus. Yeah, just for climate change. Immediate mental health. But anyway, there are worse places to be in the world, mm. right? Than Southern California. It's still, all things considered, a pretty awesome place to live. And that is my not-so-subtle segue to ask you where we are this week, Pete. This week, Steve, we are in Rwanda. Yeah, a yeah. country in uh, Central Africa, mm-hmm. which I'm sure most, or if not all, of our listeners know. Mm-hmm. In Rwanda, where the well-known protagonist of the film Hotel Rwanda, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Rusesa Begina. Nice. Yep, Did I do it. that correctly? That's it. Okay, cool. The protagonist... Of that film, Paul Recessa Begina <laughs> was arrested on terrorism charges and appeared in handcuffs on TV last Monday, that the thirty first. Yeah, the thirty first of August. Because that, that guy's good, a right? hero, right? Well, I was under that impression, man. Yeah, mm. and uh, he was 
arrested, which is a huge turn of events. Right. Yeah. For those of you who have not seen this movie, Recesa Bagina was a moderate Hutu hotelier in Rwanda's capital, Kigali. And he was portrayed by Don Cheadle in the Oscar-nominated performance in the 2004 movie. It's a great movie, if you haven't seen it. Legitimately a great movie and a great story. Because during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, where ethnic Hutu militias called the Intera Hamwe in Rwandan, which apparently translates to those who work together, which is kind of chilling, massacred between 800,000 and 1 million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus, as well as Twa, a third ethnic group in Rwanda that are more popularly known as the Pygmies, inside of 100 days. So that's... Eight to 10,000 people killed per day, Correct. every day for 100 and days. And they were mostly killed by hand with machetes and like rocks in basically the most horrible way possible. That's hard to fathom. Just- it's, it's hard to stomach. This is probably one of the worst things to happen in recent human history. Just obviously not as big as the Holocaust during World War II in terms of the number of people killed. But in terms of the intensity and the manner in which it was conducted, it's... Absolutely jaw-droppingly horrifying. Yeah, yeah, jaw-droppingly horrifying uh, and inconceivable, I think, for people who live in the United States, for instance, like what this actually amounted to. The movie, I think, helped make some of this more clear to us. Resesa Bagina single-handedly saved about 1,200 refugees during this 100-day period of terror by sheltering them in his French-owned luxury hotel in the capital. So he actually admitted these Tutsis and other moderate Hutus like himself to save them from these militias who basically stopped at the door. And he did things like bargain with militia leaders and paid them off with bribes and like booze and cigarettes and stuff. He put himself on the line. He called militia leaders that he happened to know and said, maybe you can send your guy someplace else for a little while, and just stalled and managed mm. to save these 1,200 people. And as a result of this, he became very famous and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush in 2005. He's received many international rewards from different countries, different organizations for this active heroism during a very dark time in Rwandan and, in fact, human history. Now, Rusesa Bagina ended up fleeing the country in 1996 after surviving an assassination attempt and became a Belgian citizen and a U.S. permanent resident. He's been living mostly in San Antonio, Texas recently. So he hasn't actually been in Rwanda for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the story goes, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting story in terms of how he ended up there in handcuffs. Recesa Bagina was apprehended in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, which we talked about recently, in reference mm-hmm. to its peace deal with Israel, where he was supposed to attend a meeting in Dubai. There was no extradition hearing held, meaning that he was probably kidnapped by Rwandan agents, hmm. Rwandan security forces. The UAE has denied involvement, saying only that he landed in Dubai, checked into a hotel, and then took off again five hours later. That yeah, sounds rather suspicious, doesn't it? <laughs> They're absolutely covering up what really happened. Most likely, yeah. That's uh, rather bizarre behavior for somebody to fly yeah. to Dubai from San Antonio. 
<laughs> yeah, and also for him to voluntarily fly to Rwanda under his current yeah. life situation. Is it known why he flew to the UAE in the first place? Was it meant to be a layover to somewhere else? It's unclear. And I think that aspect of the story is still coming out. I think okay. journalists are still trying to figure out how exactly he was lured to this third location mm-hmm. where he was very obviously kidnapped by basically the Rwandan Secret Service and mm-hmm. returned forcibly to Rwanda. And Rwanda, the second sort of major character in this drama is Rwanda's authoritarian president, Paul Kagame, with whom Rusesa Bagina has openly feuded for many years, basically. Now, Kagame was the leader of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, which was the Tutsi rebel army that defeated the Hutu government and brought the genocide to a close after that 100-day period. Since he did that, he has basically been in control of Rwanda for the following 25 years, 20 of those, the last 20 of those, as president of Rwanda. And Rusesa Bagina, they should have been allies, right? In terms of Rusesa Bagina was this moderate Hutu who saved Tutsis. Kagame was a Tutsi leader who liberated the other Tutsis who were being killed by the Hutus. But Rusesa Bagina has said, actually, Kagame is no hero. In the process of liberating the country, his forces conducted a quote-unquote parallel genocide of Hutus in the military campaign. And Mm. indeed, the Rwandan army, under Kagame's leadership, seems to have been involved in attacking Hutus in the neighboring country of the Democratic Republic of Congo in the late 1990s, where there have been many problems and tragic history of war. The Congo War, some have called Africa's World War, and something approaching one million people have died in, yeah, over the, the many years of warfare in eastern Congo, which is basically in a state of anarchy. The thing is, among many other things that are illegal in Rwanda under leadership, it is illegal to discuss whether the Tutsis committed anti-Hutu crimes after the genocide, right? So this is one way in which Rusesa Bagina has gotten on Kagame's bad side. And that's a place you don't want to be, man. <laughs> yeah, he's... He can commit retribution, can't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So critics of Kagame in the media or in opposition parties have tended, frankly, not to do very well. He jails, disappears, tortures, and assassinates opponents fairly routinely. So he jailed a major opposition candidate for the presidency in 2018 for a year. And she got off, I think, pretty lightly compared to what's happened to some other people. There was another popular gospel singer who f- was found dead in police custody in February. And he had previously been jailed between 2015 and 18 for plotting against the government. And people have been found assassinated in South Africa with like cords wrapped around their neck in a hotel room, stuff like that. Jeez. Yeah, like ex-agents from the Rwandan secret services who know stuff. So you, you don't want to get on Kagame's bad side, basically. And Rusesa Bagina has been there for a long time. Right. The thing is that Rusesa Bagina may not actually be fully innocent himself in that he has supported increasingly violent Hutu-led groups like the Rwanda Movement for Democratic Change. This is the RMDC, which has an armed wing that was accused of conducting attacks in Rwanda in 2018 and 2019. 
Okay, so Recessa Begina may have moved from being a peaceful supporter of change to supporting more violent means. Maybe, yeah, somewhat less peaceful anyway. In a 2018 video, Recessa Begina is quoted saying, it is imperative that in 2019 we speed up the liberation struggle of the Rwandan people. The time has come for us to use any means possible to bring about change in Rwanda as all political means have been tried and failed, which I would interpret as advocating violence. <laughs> yeah, so. when you say uh, any means possible, that certainly includes violence. Yeah, and all political means have been tried and failed, which is true. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That leaves very few options, in fact, other than force. Yeah, exactly. I think has a pretext to get his hands on this guy, which is what appears to have happened. Well, there you have it. There you have it. And a kidnapping has taken place. That's right. And now we do a perp walk uh, with this guy <laughs> who's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and starred in an Oscar-nominated movie. Well, his um, story has starred. Don Cheadle did the actual acting. but the, uh, Indeed. I'm going to say this early maybe in the episode, but I personally find it very surprising that Kagame decided to create the amount of potential trouble for himself internationally that he has chosen to create. It is by interesting. Kid, by kidnapping this guy. It is interesting. It doesn't seem very rational because this guy is an international hero. He's well known. Again, yeah. his story was told by Don Cheadle, who is a great actor, and many Kagame, Americans have seen this movie. <laughs> Kagame is, in fact, thought of pretty highly in a lot of the Western world as well. He is. So he this is. is a potential reputation breaker that he didn't need to commit. But we'll talk more about that, won't we? Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, you're not wrong at all about that. There's a number of head-scratching aspects to this. Uh, before we get to that, though, I think we should probably explore what Rwanda's deal is. <laughs> because <laughs> we, ex we explore every country's deal on here, don't we? Yeah, no, we get into the deals. This section's called, What's the Deal with Rwanda? <laughs> we used to call this previously on, but I, what's yeah. the deal? It has a, kind of a Seinfeldian bent. The first name for this show was Deal or No Deal, but we got rid of the no deal part. Yeah, it's just deal. <laughs> yeah, deal. It's Yeah. Shall I talk about the deal with Rwanda? Yeah, like hit okay. me up with some Rwanda facts. I'll be the deal guy. Um, in this case, Rwanda is a small landlocked country in Central Africa's, Africa's Great Lakes region, nestled between the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, Tanzania, and Burundi. Tough neighborhood. It is, isn't it? Yeah. As you mentioned earlier. The Plus landlocked. Like none of these aspects are good. Please continue. So wars in any of these neighboring countries can spill over the border. and Can do. and do. And yeah, landlocked means no ports, means it's tough to trade mm. and get your, for instance, agricultural commodities out of the country. Gotcha. Tends to so, increase poverty. I see. Okay. So... Size-wise, it's about the size of Maryland. Mm -hmm. This is the second time we've compared a country to Maryland, size-wise. I forget what the other one was. Might have been Israel? It may have. Yeah. We talk about Maryland a lot, or we used to, because Sumi's from Maryland. But That's right. It's our way of pouring out a 40 for yeah. Sumi, mentioning Maryland. Exactly. 13 million people live in Rwanda, and that's twice the population of Maryland. Mm -hmm. This population makes Rwanda one of the most densely populated countries in all of Africa. And keep in mind, this is after a genocide that killed 15% of the population, roughly. 
and caused another 2 million people to leave. That is very incredible. So does yeah. that mean it would, like without question, be the most densely populated country? In I'm not sure that it is the most densely populated, but the fact that it's so small compared mm -hmm. to other African countries, I think makes it a lot easier to be densely populated. But that makes sense, yeah. population has also grown very rapidly in the time since the genocide. And a lot of those displaced people came back too. Okay, that all makes very good sense. Mm. So the GDP per capita, which means each person's income basically, right? Yeah, average exactly. Yeah. Of Rwanda is US $2,000 a year, which is not a quite, lot. Yeah, not a lot of money. That's quite poor. But in comparison to the GDP in uh, per capita in the rest of the countries of Africa, it's actually in the middle. Yeah. And um, considering where that figure is coming from, it's, it's quite good. <laughs> it represents a lot of progress in 20 A lot years. of growth. Yeah. So it's still poor, but actually no longer dirt poor and mm. very much pointed in the right direction. In context, that's impressive. Yeah, which is incredible considering what happened in Rwanda. Got it. So like much of Africa, Rwanda has a tragic history. Yes. In the pre-colonial era, in the 19th century, there was the kingdom of Rwanda, which was mm -hmm. a Tutsi monarchy. That's right. And uh, the country had Hutu and Tutsi groups, but they the groups were primarily class-based. So they weren't mm -hmm. ethnic. They were yeah, they divided weren't. more by class. That's right. And the way political scientists and economists think about this is the ethnic groups were not primordial, meaning that they were not immutable. And in fact, Hutus and Tutsis at this point could not necessarily tell each other apart. <laughs> is if you had lived in the same village, then you would know who was a Hutu and who is a Tutsi because you grew up with them. Right. It's kind of like knowing that somebody's a Protestant or a Catholic, but you can't just look at somebody and be like, oh, Hutu, Tutsi, right? Got, gotcha. Uh, the Belgians, yeah. The Belgians said, well, Tutsis are taller and they have longer necks, but like this is completely anecdotal. Right. And the Belgians shouldn't have said that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the record. Yeah. Belgians shouldn't have done that. But okay, that difference at that time in the 19th century was primarily class-based. So That's right. You, uh, one could be Hutu, graduate to being Tutsi by becoming wealthy. So it's like more like becoming upper middle class from low class, lower Moving class. Moving to a better neighborhood. Income-wise yeah. in the exactly. U.S. now. Genetic evidence seems to indicate that the two groups may have started as two actual different ethnic groups, mm -hmm. but they intermarried enough to the point that they were indistinguishable genetically, right? Uh, even in the pre-colonial era. era. And it's kind of this situation, uh, like just to draw what is probably a bad analogy, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's like um, like white people in the United States, right? It's like a lot of us are just of like European extraction. There are perhaps like stereotypically Italian features or stereotypically Irish features, what have you, right? But these can actually appear in people who are from completely different areas of, of Europe ancestrally because there's been so much interbreeding, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's just not really that meaningful. Certainly. It's irrelevant at this point, basically. Yeah. So that's what 
the divisions were between Hutu and, Hutu and Tutsi in the pre-colonial era. So then came the colonial era. Yes, uh, the Belgians. Those darn Belgians. Yes, they have much to answer for uh, when it comes to Central Africa anyway. And they've done some answering, but yeah, it's... Their answer is usually try a delicious waffle and shut up. Or chocolate. I do love Belgian waffles and chocolate. I'm right there with you, man. But yeah, ever been to Bruges? Lovely town. <laughs> I have been in Bruges, to be honest. Yes. Lovely town, interesting movie. I had Thai food in Bruges, if I'm being honest, and it was delicious. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Plenty of Thais in Belgium. Anyway, yeah, so during the colonial era, the Belgians came in and screwed everything up, right, Pete? That's what it says right here, Steve. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in 1935, Belgian administrators essentialized Hutu and Tutsi groups, turning them from this class-based uh, d- distinction yeah. that came before to an ethnic distinction. And they did this by issuing identity cards. Great. I love a good identity card. <laughs> we might, I don't know, real IDs, are we getting them soon? COVID immunity cards? Yeah, who knows? Get one of those? I was going to go get a real ID, but it got pushed back a year. So, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm not so going to the DMV, man. Still have my fake ID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what got you a Tutsi identity card in this, this is time? Pretty good. In 1935. So the Belgians kind of understood that Tutsis were upper class and Hutus were lower class, except when that wasn't the case. <laughs> but like as a rule of thumbs, like Tutsis, like the ruling class, are wealthier. So they just they were just like, all right, what is the major form of wealth? And Rwanda at this time. It's actually cow ownership. So they just drew a line. Anyone owning more than 10 cows is Tutsi. You get a Tutsi identity card. If you have nine cows, bummer, you're Hutu. Oh, wow. So maybe one of your cows died, and you, or two of them. You had 11 cows, and two and it of them... It turns out you're Hutu. Yeah, it turns out you're died. Hutu. Uh, this is a real problem, because under the Belgians, only Tutsis get places in the best schools. Only Tutsis uh, get trained to enter government. Only Tutsis have uh, certain economic privileges. Hutus are discriminated against in a way that they never were during the Tutsi monarchy. Got it. So in the beginning, the division here was completely arbitrary. Just the Belgians said, you are Tutsi, you are Hutu. But within a couple of generations, the implications were huge because yep. from that point forward, one group of people got the good schools, one people got one set of people got the good education, better access to better places to live, et cetera. Right. And here's the thing. Let's say you had 10 cows, you got your identity card, you lose a cow, you're at nine cars, cows, bleh, you lose a cow, you're at nine cows. You could have 10 cars, but only nine cows. And they had, I don't know if too many not Rwandans make the cut. Yeah, right. But you're down to nine cows, you still have your identity card, Right. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's not like you apply to the Belgians to get downgraded to Hutu or vice versa. There's no more b- mobility between these groups. So they've taken a like a completely arbitrary economic distinction that can change and made it permanent just on on like a snapshot basis. Mm. Terrible and thing to do. It's and a terrible it, thing to happen in that it's, country. It's pretty bad. And the Belgians did this because they weren't that interested in the Rwandans as people. They weren't interested in learning how the country actually worked. They were just like, we need an easy way to extract resources from this place. So we're going to do what's called indirect rule. We're going to take the Tutsis who were in charge and 
basically give them a reason to collaborate with us by giving them more privileges forever, right? Uh, but that also means that they depend on us yeah. and they're now working for us, right? And then they do the work of keeping the Hutu majority down. Exactly. Yeah, it's indirect rule, divide and conquer. And there's been a lot of scholarly work suggesting that this particular strategy during the colonial era leads to much worse outcomes down the road because it turns people against one another by design. (laughs) It's divide and conquer, right? Oh, yeah. So they just, they took this, I don't know if, Rwanda society was purely harmonious prior to the Belgians. Almost certainly not. I'm sure that there were issues, many issues. Living in an absolute monarchy was would be one of them. But things got worse after this because the people were turned against one another. And in fact, ethnic strife between the two groups starts during this colonial era in a big way. That's just so crazy to think about since they weren't actually of different ethnicities. <laughs> not really. Yeah, they may have been... Some number yeah. of centuries in the past. They just got put on two different teams, basically. Yeah, exactly. And then and if, you got guess on what? The, if you were on the good team and you wanted to stay on it, the lucky team, it was like you against your less fortunate uh, country. Well, how lucky men. is that team when four out of five people playing the game are on the other team? It's lucky for a while. There you go. Yeah, it's a temporary bit of luck. Yeah, then it gets real unlucky because the Belgians leave in 1962. We get independence. And guess what? The Hutus are the majority in the new country, right? And are they interested in going easy on their Tutsi uh, brethren? No, because they've been getting the short end of the stick for 30 years at this point. They basically give the Tutsis the short end of the stick and take the long end of the stick, which Mm -hmm. I guess is somewhat understandable. Short-sighted, but understandable. And they start discriminating against the Tutsi minority. At that time, was there, in fact, a lot of killing? Like, did Hutus kill a lot of Tutsis then? There was, for sure, some ethnic strife. My understanding is that during independence, the independence era, about 100,000 people were killed on both sides. So, the independence from Belgium era? Yes. Mostly Tutsis in this process of getting their land taken away from them. But in mm. many cases, this was just land that had formerly belonged to Hutus. Right. 30 but years a, back. 100,000 people, that's really a lot of people, of that's course. That's really a lot of people, especially at that time in Rwanda, which didn't have that many people in it at this time. Got Keep it, in mind yeah. that this was 60 years ago, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, on a percentage-wise, it probably wasn't that much less than the 1994 genocide, which is crazy. <laughs> like, every 30 years, mm-hmm. something terrible happens in Rwanda. The, it was 1962 when they gained yes. independence from Belgium. And then from that point on, uh, again, the Hutu were the majority, and strife took place. There was refugee outflow. There was... yeah killing of Tutsis by Hutus. Correct. And you flash forward The Tutsis, yeah, to 30 years later, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Tutsis who left the country regrouped in places like Uganda, where there are a lot of Tutsis, and the government there supported them. And in fact, the Ugandan government helped organize Kagame's, Paul Kagame's army, which was the Rwandan Patriotic Front. So they trained there, and the RPF and Kagame at this point, kicks off a civil war in 1990 by invading northern Rwanda from Uganda. So they just go over the border and start taking territory. 
Kicks off a civil war. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, there, there is a Rwandan civil war in the period, you know, roughly 1990 to 1994. In response to this, you get the Hutu power movement. Okay, Hutu power. So they're like Hutu nationalists. Exactly. And they're extremists. And they regard the Tutsi as alien invaders. Right? So there's a lot of propaganda being produced by the Hutu power movement at this time. Keep in mind, the Hutus are still in control of the government. These guys are to the right of the government. Like, they're even more extreme than the government. Um, The government is actually negotiating with the Tutsis, the RPF, at this point in time, which is why we think uh, on April 6, 1994, Hutu Rwandan President Juvenal Habyarimana's plane is shot down by a shoulder-launched missile over Kigali. And the genocide begins the next day. So it's not known whether it was Hutu power shooting yep. down this plane. Yep. Because the president was negotiating with Tutsis. Yeah. So the preponderance of evidence suggests that it was Hutu extremists that did this, that didn't want Habyarimana to make any kind of peace with the RPF. There's been a sort of revisionist school saying, no, actually it was the RPF and Kagame that did this Hmm. because they wanted to destroy the government and basically take over the country. But I think that makes a lot less sense because the genocide was planned by the Hutu power people and it kicked off basically at exactly the same time. You said the day after, yeah. The president's plane was shot down. They basically kill the entire government in the days following and then they embark on the genocide, which is coordinated throughout the entire country through the use of like radio, these radio stations in rural areas are broadcasting propaganda saying your Tutsi neighbors are cockroaches. It's literally the language they use. They must be exterminated, right? That's terrifying and sickening. It is both of those. And there had been like a whisper campaign to prepare the ground months prior to this. This is why it's pretty abundantly obvious that it was the Hutu power people that shot this plane down. It sounds uh, as though it probably was, based on what you said. Yeah. Probably the fact that Kagame has been in power for 25 years gives credence to people trying to claim he did it so he could get what he has now. Exactly. No one knew that he would get what he has now at that moment in time. 1994. Exactly. No, they they had to do the genocide. And and so that was the reason to get rid of the government, because the government might have stopped it. Like they, they were, it was a Hutu government, but I don't think that they would have condoned murdering a million people, including a lot of moderate Hutus. Sounds like they were trying to maybe reassimilate Tutsis who had left. Yeah, they were trying to cut some kind of deal with Kagame because Kagame, as it turns out, was pretty good at fighting and he was in the process of winning this war. Frankly, he seems to be pretty good at everything other than democracy, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Moving on to the genocide, as we said earlier, 800,000 killed out of a population of 7 million in 100 days. Some estimates go up to a million. This is 70% of all the Tutsis in the country. It's it's hard to process that as actually being true. 100 days. It's three months. Um, Hey, as there, I know you probably don't know of every genocide that's ever taken place, but can you think of a time where eight to 10,000 people were killed per day consistently besides the Holocaust? I don't 
thing. Well, so we This had, is like a standalone thing. There's yeah, never really been something You could like say this. the uh, the Ukrainian famine could qualify when Stalin starved the Ukrainians to death. Mm, okay. It was not a matter of going around with machetes and chopping people's limbs off until they died, right? That's just a, a horror. Yeah, like that's much more like a Genghis Khan type thing. And Genghis Khan did legitimately kill hundreds of thousands of people in in the space of days when he, for instance, took over Central Asian cities that resisted him. He would pile up skulls in a pyramid, right? He was that type of guy. But that was also 600 years ago, right? It's not really something you expect to see happen in 1994. Well put. Yeah. 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 Genghis Khan type stuff. It's not So this great. will always, this for all of history, this will be remembered as one of the like most brutal things that ever happened. Pretty bad. It's yeah. Pr- it's pretty bad. And this is roughly contemporaneous with the ethnic cleansing in former Yugoslavia as right. well. Bosnia, Serbia. Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And in terms of people getting killed, that episode was nothing like this. Yeah. Not even close. Okay. A- as bad as it was. Another example might be the Armenian genocide. I'm not sure how long that took, but about a, m- over a million people died in that. Jeez. Um, around World War I. Shocking as well. Yes. Um, so in this case, though, <clears throat> 800,000 to a million killed in 100 days out of a population of 7 million. That's 70% right. of all Tutsis and 30% of the Twa, who are also known as pygmy Pygmies. people. Yeah. And uh, they mostly lived in the, the mountain jungles. But yeah, they were apparently targeted and exterminated as well, even though they were already a pretty small <clears throat> minority. So yeah, uh, a monstrous historic crime. It's like there's no other way to put it. Right. This is like so, a, an all-time in human history crime um, yeah. of genocide. Anyway, Kagame's RPF invades and wins the war against the Hutu power movement in July 1994. Well, that's a big deal. So yes. <laughs> 70% of all Tutsis in the country were killed, but yes. ultimately a Tutsi comes from out of the country, comes invades, Yes. And wins this war against the Hutu. Yeah, and I think he has fewer people, and they're not as well armed, but they're just way better at fighting. <laughs> and I think the Hutus are also probably somewhat disorganized at this point in time, given what they've just done. They're mm. maybe not prepared to fight against an actual army. After this happens, two million refugees, mostly Hutus, leave the country and militias, Hutu militias regroup next door in Congo and elsewhere. And as you might imagine, after an event like this, both the Rwandan government and Rwandan civil society are completely destroyed. Yeah, that's more more than a third of the population either killed or left. Yeah. So we have, of the 785 Rwandan judges prior to the genocide, only 20 are still alive at the end of this. Of the 74 members of the Transitional National Assembly, which is put together in, I believe, 1995 by Kagame to restart the the government because the government's been destroyed, zero of them had served prior to the genocide. That's because of the deaths among the Tutsi, but it's also because I think a lot of the Hutus had left or were implicated. Right. And in the genocide. Most likely Kagami wanted to start with a clean slate. 
Yeah. And he kind of had to, right? He kind of had to build from nothing. And so I think it's important for us to talk more about Kagame and the Kagame era in Rwanda, because this guy, frankly, is fascinating. He's a historical figure that I think a lot of people don't know anything about, but probably should, given what he's done in Rwanda. Because, again, an ambiguous figure. He's accomplished legitimately amazing things in Rwanda. He turned Rwanda from the worst of basket cases, Mm -hmm. like following a genocide where the country is burned to the ground and destroyed. There's bodies rotting in the streets, literally. The first thing they have to do is bury 800,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. Not a small job. But over the course of a few decades, we go from that to being a star of African economic development. During his tenure, the economy has grown roughly 8% a year, admittedly from a low base, but that's like Chinese-level performance, right? It's it's basically as good as it gets in economic development. It ranks first in progress towards the UN's Millennium Development Goals. And these are things like uh, the percentage of girls that are educated in primary school. It's the fertility number for women, how many children women have. It's malnutrition and how many people are malnourished. And Rwanda is just systematically checking off each one of these goals in extremely impressive fashion. Life expectancy in Rwanda increased from 48 to 58, which is low by our standards, but again, actually pretty good by African standards and getting Hmm. better. So it increased by 10 years in the course of 20 years. That's a lot. That's That's very good progress. That's the kind of progress we saw in the United States, right? In like the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Hmm. And again, after World War II, right? It's it's like, it's real fast progress that you just kind of don't see most places that are developing. You have the development of international tourism. In particular, Rwanda has mountain gorillas that uh, have become international superstars. So there are tours. I'll be damned. Do you think that three of them could beat five lions in a fight? <laughs> we should reopen that chapter <laughs> and uh, check on that meme and see how the gorillas are doing. See where it's at. I think the eagles always win no matter what. The eagles always win. Was it 50 eagles? There's a I lot think of so. eagles. So many eagles that they would never lose. Yeah. It's again, once you go for the eyes, even if you're a gorilla, yeah. you're, you're going to have problems. And if you can fly away, that helps too. Yeah, it helps a lot. And Rwanda also has like a high-tech sector now. So they've been laying fiber optic cable in Kigali to outlying areas. And they have like call centers and support centers and startups in this place that, again, was subject to a genocide. And before that, Belgian colonialism, which is never the predictor of success for (laughs) for any post-colonial African country. Right. And finally, it's been among the best performers during the COVID pandemic in Africa. Gosh. So none of these things happen by accident. They only happen when someone decides in a leadership position, like the government decides to make them happen in a coordinated way. And as actually, like a lot of governments would like this type of thing to happen legitimately. Many governments are corrupt and they don't care. Um, A lot of other governments are not corrupt, and they would like to have this type of progress, but they just can't get it together. So it says something about Kagame's ability. Yeah. This guy is legitimately extremely capable when it comes to 
running as country. Now, there's a dark side to that, which is that Kagame is not what you would call a Democrat (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. He brooks no dissent whatsoever and has used violence, including deadly violence, to accomplish his goals. And he has, he's on record as saying his two models for Rwanda, the two countries he looks up to most, are two other small countries. One is Singapore, which is not a democracy, but is renowned for competent governance mm-hmm. and economic performance. And the other is Israel, which is a democracy, but uh, is also well known for using violence and sabotage to protect itself, right? Mm-hmm. Including targeted assassinations, which is something the United States does too, by the way. Yeah, well, openly now with... Qasem Soleimani, yeah, that would be the guy that Trump assassinated with a drone strike earlier in 2020. Correct. But there are other examples too. So Kagame's personal backstory is kind of interesting in that he was a Tutsi refugee, who served as an intelligence officer in the Ugandan army next door. He, he was forced to leave Rwanda and moved to Uganda and basically got trained in the Ugandan army. He's descended from Tutsi Rwandan royalty on both sides of his family. Both his mom and his dad were related to previous monarchs of that Rwandan monarchy. And he gained control of the RPF's military wing in 1990. And he was only 36 in 1994. So he was 32 when he gained, he was put in control of the RPF. And 36 when he ended the genocide. And basically, from that point on, from age 36 on, Kagame has been in charge of Rwanda. So he's roughly 60 years old now. Mm. Still pretty young. Accomplished um, a lot in his 30s. Yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> could, you could say that. Nonsense. So Kagame obviously came to power in an era of what can only be called bloody chaos. And he has attempted to minimize the cycle of revenge with a top-down strategy because Rwanda has been trapped in this cycle of violence whereby one group takes over the government, the other group is exiled and leaves. Then that other group comes back, takes over the government, commits atrocities. The first group leaves, right? And he has said, after this genocide, we must break the cycle. And so he has instituted basically genocide control in Rwanda, and he has a whole program for it, including things like an annual 100-day period of mourning. So three months out of the year, the Rwandans are officially in mourning for the 1994 genocide, and they are doing things like conducting reenactments and, uh, I guess, almost pageants, explaining what happened during the genocide and why it cannot happen again. There have been re-education camps to teach Rwandanness, which is the new, the only ethnicity recognized by the government is Rwandan now, instead of Hutu and Tutsi identities. So Kagame has tried... Uh, to undo what the Belgians did with those identity cards Mm -hmm. by merging them back together into Rwandans. He has, I think, tried to take the sting out of being a dispossessed Hutu by devoting a lot of resources to rural healthcare and education and helping those poor rural Hutus develop economically. 
And in fact, from 2000 to 2015, Rwanda managed to cut infant mortality rates in half, which is, again, nothing short of incredible progress. Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's stunning. It is stunning. And then there's this other really interesting technique the Rwandans have used. It's kind of a traditional technique called gacha courts, which are, I think the literal translation is something like amongst the grass. And it's these village courts that the country set up to deal with the 400,000 genocide suspects on the community level between 2002 and 2012. Hmm. So after the genocide, how do you deal with all the people that participated in the genocide? You need to reintegrate them back into society, right? And they're still living mostly in the same places with their victims. Right, they're next-door neighbors with... yeah. People yeah. who macheted their brother to death, et cetera. Exactly. Or in some cases, their entire family. Or perhaps had them chop off limbs and stuff, and they're still there. So how do you come to grips with that? And the answer, Kagame's answer was, we need to focus on truth and reconciliation. Over retribution, we'll just keep the cycle alive. And so we're moving to truth and reconciliation, which is something that South Africa did in the post-apartheid era under Nelson Mandela. It was this idea that if you are honest about your crimes and you're sincere about your regret and the community sees that you're sincere and agrees that you're sincere, your sentence will be either reduced or eliminated completely. Most of the people who participated in the genocide were sentenced to, to community service and successfully reintegrated. And if you think about it, not all of the uh, 400,000 Hutu genocide suspects were enthusiastic participants in the genocide. A lot of them were threatened with genocide themselves unless they got with the program. So right. a lot of them were just ordinary people who were caught up in this thing. And they had to do things that they didn't want to do. Yeah. It's an unthinkable challenge to try and reintegrate those parties, but sounds yeah. like it's been reasonably successful. Yeah, it, it, it has been. And it is unthinkable in a way that I think those of us who live in the developed world just can't really understand. And I, I suppose if you're in Germany or Israel, perhaps you can understand maybe some parts of Eastern or Southeastern Europe as well. Perhaps so, Most yeah. of us can't. Most of us can't. Most of us has no, have no conception of this. Right. Notably, no Tutsis were tried by these courts. And again, it is illegal to suggest that the Tutsis committed any crimes during or after the genocide. So, 80% of the country are Hutu, right? Yes. However, there's this Rwandan-ness movement, which is yeah. meant to like make people stop thinking of themselves as Hutu or Tutsi. That's right. But... They still do. <laughs> okay, so they still do. Yes. And one could speculate that those who apologize, many are in fact quite sorry, and yeah. some aren't for yeah. what they did during the genocide. I think that's true. And that the fact that no Tutsis can be tried for anything regarding the or relating to the genocide probably doesn't sit well with all of the Hutus in the country, which are the majority. So I think you're is, right about that. There are some feelings 
between the two parties that are probably being kept under a lid by Kagami's government. I think that's accurate. Yeah, I, I don't see how it could be any other way. Like, I have no idea what the, those percentages might be. Sure. No, I guess no one really does, but yeah. And to be sure, this whole process was completely exhausting. It was just ten years of constant work on dealing with the legacy of the genocide. As of 2012, Kagame mostly ramped things down and turned towards technocratic modernization, so economic development and policies designed to improve Rwanda, and he's been really obviously successful (laughs) in that regard. Yeah. And by some measurements, at least, and depends how much you believe of these measurements, this reconciliation process has been successful too. There's something called the Rwanda Reconciliation Barometer, which is taken every five years, kind of like the U.S. Census, except our census is every 10 years. Mm -hmm. They do this every five years. And the most recent reported that 90% of Rwandans believe that communities have fully reconciled which is a good amount. The question you raised earlier, and it was a very good question, it's like, how much do we believe that Rwandans are not being honest about this, right? Right. Do the people who take these polls believe that there's a consequence for answering the quotes wrong way and saying, no, we don't feel the community has fully reconciled? Right. It's The answer is probably people are at least worried about that or they're thinking about it, right? Got it. A consequence doesn't actually need to happen for the same result to be achieved. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm I sure think I would imagine, I'm not sure, but I would guess that a lot of people would like to put this period in the past. Oh, yeah. And I say, think that's right. let's just call it reconciled. Yeah. Like, um, it's not perfect. It'll never be perfect. But we need to just get past this and move on. Yeah, two other sort of information points. Few Rwandans expect a return to mass violence. One could argue that few expected mass violence to break out in 1994 the way that it did, except for those who were busy planning it. But that's still encouraging. Also, Hutus and Tutsis are now intermarrying at the same rates as before the genocide. Making that distinction once again completely arbitrary, which it always was. Right. It's, it seems like the distinctions are starting to move towards breaking down again, at least move in the right direction. Right. Okay. Another really notable part of what's happened in Rwanda is how women have done in this new Rwanda. They went from zero rights to full equality, basically in a very short period of time. Hmm. And there are a lot of different reasons for this. One is Kagame really wanted this to happen, apparently. And, like, he had a lot to do with it, legitimately. Like, he put qualified women in important spots in the government and throughout the country himself. So that's part of it. Another part of it is, for the first few years after the genocide, Rwanda's adult population was 70% female due to the massacres and the exiles. Wow. Yeah. There's no getting around. You need 70% of the population to be part of everything. Exactly. Yeah. It's like we can't have a traditional patriarchal society anymore. That's just not going to work. <laughs> like literally, it's not going to work. Right. Um, there's, there's just no way. The numbers don't line up for that. And just in case, the new Rwandan constitution requires at least 30% uh, female representation across all government institutions. 
That's very cool. Yeah. And by way of comparison, the current female representation figure for Congress in the United States is 24%. <laughs> and I, I believe Rwanda is actually much higher than 30% for most right. of its institutions. 30% is required, but yeah. they're exceeding it. Yeah. Because they can tell it's a good idea. It is a very good idea. In 2014, half of Rwanda's Supreme Court justices were women, and Rwanda ranked first in the world for female representation in parliament. I believe it was over half. Mm. Or, or around half at that point in time. And there are very few places in the world where you could say that. And in 1994, women had no rights at all? I don't know if they had no rights, but they had fewer rights for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's a huge change. Um, yeah, they, they certainly did not have this type of equality, mandated or otherwise. Okay, got it. Yeah, Rwanda has a lot of good things going for it. On the other hand, there is no democracy in Rwanda. Hmm. Uh, progress towards democratization has completely halted. Okay, so Kagame is essentially a dictator. Essentially. And it seems like he kind of grew into that role in that for a while, he seemed to be legitimately popular. Mm-hmm. He won elections in 2003 and 2010 with over 90% of the vote. On the other hand, it's hard to tell whether he's legitimately popular <laughs> because people are scared of him, especially now. And he's he had more or less total control of the media. Hmm. And the tolerance level to opposition has varied depending on how big of a threat it is to def- actually defeat Kagame. If opposition leaders stay within certain bounds, they're allowed to campaign and lose, (laughs) right? (laughs) Kind of a Putin-like situation. Yeah. And Rwanda, post-genocide Rwanda, also has a bunch of laws stating that nobody can discuss anything related to the genocide. And this can be very liberally interpreted. You mean uh, candidates or no one in the whole society can talk about it at all? Nobody in the whole society. Okay. Yeah, basically. It's like other countries in the world have laws against hate speech, Mm -hmm. like uh, Germany, for instance. Sure, yeah. And Rwanda considers talking about the genocide outside of these sort of official processes that they went through. Mm -hmm. It's like inflammatory. Yeah, a form of hate speech. And because Kagame had so much to do with ending the genocide, when you criticize Kagame it's very easy for his government to say, well, you're criticizing his solution to the genocide. Mm -hmm. Or just talking about the genocide, period. Yeah, so it's this endless source of legitimacy for him. Got it. And he's Um, progressed or like followed a path from democratically elected, non-dictatorial guy to... (laughs) It's hard to say because he won a war and took over a destroyed country. Right. And so under those circumstances, it's well, what does it mean to hold a democratic election? Who who are you going to vote for? (laughs) Yeah. There's nobody to vote for. All the 15% of the entire country is dead. Another 25% has left. It's like he was just in charge because there's nobody left. Right. And he won the war. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, how do you reestablish democracy? from that point forward. And yes, they've had votes. Are, are they really meaningful? Yeah, I mean, he, he won by 90% twice, which perhaps he, he did that legitimately. 
but perhaps maybe. those who voted for him didn't feel they had any other option. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't legitimate. It's hard to say, right? It's one of these situations where Kagame is not necessarily stuffing ballot boxes like Lukashenko over in Belarus, but he does have control of the media. People are terrified of him. He causes people to be jailed and disappeared, strangled to death in hotel rooms. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. And now he has Rusesa Bajina, right? Which is like an odd and surprising new phase that he's entering. The one where he's willing to kidnap people who say things he doesn't like around the world. Famous people, really famous people. Right. Probably the most famous Rwandan, more famous than him. More famous than him, for sure. And it's an opportunity really to become famous himself for something he wouldn't necessarily want to be. (laughs) Yeah. People are now paying attention to this guy. Making that decision. Yeah. While they still weren't paying attention, he won a constitutional referendum in 2015, allowing him to run for a third term and beyond. And then he won the 2017 presidential vote with 99% of the vote. And that's where this yeah, starts yeah. to look kind of like North Korea. When you or, get to 99%, yeah, those are like Lukashenko numbers. Lukashenko or Saddam Hussein uh, is another one. Saddam Hussein used to win 100% of the vote. <laughs> just for, just he just did it for the lulls, basically. Right. Um, and Kagame can now stay in power, similar to Putin, until 2034. So he's got another 14 years of running room here. Yeah, he's on an Emperor Palpatine path, it would appear. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently, over the last few years, he has started to wear a bulletproof vest at rallies, and has become even more paranoid and authoritarian. So that's Palpatinian for sure. That's Palpatinian. Mugabean. Yeah, Mugabe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Zimbabwe, right? So what's next for Rwanda? Well, Kagame's plan seems to be to ruin Rusesa Bagina's reputation in court. He wants to get him in open court and accuse him of a bunch of stuff and probably not give him lawyers and just uh, embarrass him. And he actually thinks the rest of the world is going to see that and be like, yeah, that was a legitimate court process. I don't know this what he Rusesa thinks. Rusesa guy is not who we thought he was. Yeah, I don't know what Rwandans will think. Maybe he's more concerned about domestic politics. Mm. Rusesa Bagina has powerful allies in the West, and that threatens Kagame. The Americans and the Europeans both listen to him. The Americans a lot less under the Trump administration. And I think, to a certain extent, this is another manifestation of authoritarians looking at what's happening in the American election and wondering if time is running out on the Trump administration, which has been been less attentive to issues like this. Right. So maybe get while the getting is good. It's, uh, you're probably right. It's interesting because it's close to the end of yes. this period either way. It's like, Recessa Beginning will probably, I don't now I'm speculating, but he might still be in court for this. If Biden wins, he, Recessa Beginning might still be on trial when Biden becomes president. Like well, that you, all would, depends. you might think Kagame might have done this two years ago or something. Maybe, but that all depends on how they do trials in Rwanda. <laughs> True. It might be a five day thing. It might be kind of quick. I could be yeah. completely wrong and I wouldn't even be surprised if I were. Yeah. You know, given how things have worked in Rwanda recently, it could be a, a pretty quick sort of uh, televised thing, kind of Soviet 
the way they used to do things. You get up there, you admit your guilt, uh, you're sentenced, you go away to the gulag. Yeah. So that's what happened there. It's interesting though, because yeah. Recessa Begina has enough fame and social capital. You might expect he won't just immediately do what they tell him to do. Unless maybe yeah. he'll be tortured. Maybe. They maybe they'll that. threaten his family. They do those like, things. He probably stole his family in Rwanda. I wouldn't put, put anything past Kagame. He's ruthless, obviously. Mm-hmm. But he's under a huge um, spotlight, which again fits into this question of like, why is he doing this weird thing? Yeah, I've read some analysis saying this guy is literally just jealous because he feels that he did the heavy lifting to end the genocide and Recessa Bagina got famous for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like he uh, should and- be the most famous Rwandan. Yeah, no one really knows who Kagame is except people who pay attention to international relations. Yes, people who listen to the Elucidators podcast. That's right. We're telling you that Kagame is important. Yeah, <laughs> so so Kagame, check better be in the mail, all right? I don't want, want Kagame to know who I am, honestly. It seems like <laughs> it doesn't do work I. out well for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not wrong about that. Anyway, Western governments are split on Kagame's Rwanda. The United States, France, Belgium, and the United Nations all feel justified guilt for not intervening in the genocide. Nobody did anything. The UN ended up leaving. So Kagame has gotten something of a free pass. When any, when, whenever Westerners criticize what he's doing, he basically is able to say, well, guess what? We didn't get any help. We had to solve all of our own problems, and we continue to solve all of our own problems. So it's really convenient for you to criticize me picking up the pieces for a mess that you helped create in the case of Belgium and France mm-hmm. or didn't stop in the case of the UN or the USA. And now armchair quarterbacking me, right? Mm-hmm. Where he can legitimately say, like, I took Rwanda from being what it was post-genocide to... What you see now. Excelling in all these different areas. Yeah. And what it is now is it's called the quote unquote Switzerland of Africa. (laughs) I don't know how legitimate that is, but it is, it does not seem to be ripe with corruption. It seems to be ripe for investment. How's their fondue? I don't know, but Swiss Swiss fondue is amazing. If you want to get really fat really quickly, that's what (laughs) happened to me when I went to Switzerland. Um, and it's also, it has serious military capabilities. So it's a handy ally to have in a pretty volatile region. They have a powerful army and they've, yeah, they have a good army by central African standards. Certainly they punch above their weight. They're well-trained. They have these security services that are frankly, extremely frightening. Mm -hmm. Everybody in Africa. And I suppose the greater region is scared of these guys and they should be. Mm -hmm. And they basically, they just demonstrated that they can go to the UAE. Yes. They just conducted an extraordinary rendition, which is what we used to call it when we kidnapped people uh, and put them on a plane in a country very far away (laughs) that has nothing to do with Africa, basically. So that tells you something. A complex kidnapping. Yes. On the other hand, if I'm a Western government, I'm a little concerned by some of the aspects you pointed out about Kagame's increasingly hard light tendencies. 
this seems to be a big risk, what he's mm-hmm. doing right now with Recessa Bagina, right? Yeah, it's a new phase of decision-making risk-wise, for sure. Yeah, it, it seems to be poorer decision-making in yes. particular. And the kind of decision that someone who has developed a belief in their ultimate power starts to exactly. make. Exactly. The justice of their cause and the righteousness of what it is they have been doing and continue to do. Mm-hmm. This guy has been in power for 25 years. And yeah, it does seem like he might be starting to go off the rails a little bit. Putinize. Putinize. Putin is still on the rails, though. I guess that's true. He's a different... Yeah. He's a different beast. He's Although a different he's, type of dictator. Yeah, he's pretty... He's taken a lot of risks, too, and has started taking more risks as time goes on. Mm. There doesn't seem to be a need that we can discern for Kagame to take this risk. So that's right. It, it seems like ego-based. Like he's It just, seems personal, yeah. Yeah, because there's more downside to making himself a celebrity for arresting this person who Hotel Rwanda was made about. Yeah. Then there is an upside to quelling whatever internal militias he thinks Recessa Begina is organizing or controlling, which from what I've read, those militias really have mostly kind of fallen apart at this point anyway. They never accomplished much. They certainly weren't a threat to Kagame. Mm-hmm. But Recessa Begina has put his finger on something which is, this is not a real democracy. Mm-hmm. This is certainly not a multi-ethnic democracy. The government is run by Tutsis, once again. Mm-hmm. And like you've paid lip service to this idea of like a post-ethnic Rwanda, where everybody's Rwandan. Guess what? <laughs> it's like, Kagame is a Tutsi. He's in, in absolute control of the country. His government is mostly Tutsis. How is this any different? That's a good point. He did yeah. begin speaking about that issue in a different way yeah. recently. So he's a new type of threat, in a sense. Yeah, he's just pointing out the obvious. Yeah, but when someone that famous and influential points out the obvious, yeah, and the obvious is inconvenient to you as a dictator, then your priorities change. You don't want uh, rank-and-file Hutus in Rwanda listening to that and like like thinking about it in a different way because I'm sure they're aware of it and they acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but they've been kept kind of uh, reticent to this yeah, point. There's a system in place to yes. keep, keep that way. Yes, and the system delivers the goods economically and in terms of progress, but it does not deliver the goods in terms of actual pluralism and multi-ethnic democracy. That is not what is going on here. Do we think that there's a chance that the U.S. or some other country will intervene and try to get uh, (laughs) Recessa Begina out of there? I'm not sure what anybody can do about this. From what I've seen, the State Department has made some noises about human rights being respected and things uh, proceeding according to the law. It's boilerplate stuff. It's what they always say Mm -hmm. when this stuff happens. I don't think the Trump administration is going to do anything about this. I don't think he cares at all. Okay. Plus, I think he's majorly preoccupied. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're definitely right about that. So this trial is going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't think the Belgians can do anything. Kagame is certainly not going to listen to the Belgians. And I don't know what the the Europeans can do either, to be honest with you. What are they going to do? Are they going to invade Rwanda? No. Yeah, if it's not going to be a military solution, I don't know. Are they going to put sanctions on Rwanda? Probably not. I wonder. Yeah. Is there just no possibility of that, you think? 
I guess there's a remote possibility, but it just doesn't seem likely, depending mm-hmm. on how things proceed from here. I also am not sure that Kagame is going to do anything like sentence Recessa Bagina to death or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He might expel him from the country. He might put him under house <laughs> arrest. <laughs> you have to go back to San Antonio, which is where you live and where you wanted to be anyway. Exactly. Yeah, once, once I've exposed you for what you are, you charlatan. I don't know. I don't know. Makes it all we'll, the harder we'll to out. understand the motivation to do it at all. Like if, yeah. But uh, yes, you're right. We will find out. It's something to to observe over the next few weeks. And to play devil's advocate and to follow Rosetta Bagina's line of thought, suppose Rwanda were a democracy, mm. right? And Kagame were subject to competitive elections. That would probably mean that the Hutus, who are still in the majority, mm-hmm would run everything instead of the Tutsis. Is that any better? Right. Good question. I suppose it would be more reflective of the actual demographics of the country, which is more democratic. In that sense, you could potentially argue it would be better or more democratic, but... Maybe. I guess it's not a democracy. It might also be putting the the pieces in place for another genocide. Uh, Absolutely. It might. And what would come in a question there or into play would be how well of these reconciliation attempts and policies worked like this new policy of thinking of everyone as Rwandan rather than Hutu or Tutsi and the intermarriage between Hutus and Tutsis and the restorative justice or whatever Mm -hmm. the name is. Yeah, restorative justice. It would certainly test the actual effectiveness of that. It would test whether 90% of the population really does believe that they've moved beyond the genocide. Yeah. When political scientists think about democracy, there are two of the hardest problems to solve. One is ensuring that parties actually alternate in power. And some political scientists make that their entire definition of democracy. (laughs) It's that... Multiple parties that are meaningfully uh, different from one another actually exist, and they alternate in power. So by that definition, Japan was not a democracy for most of the 20th century because one party held power. Mm -hmm. That's somewhat controversial. And the other really hard part of democracy is respecting and protecting minority rights. It's exceptionally difficult to do, even in this country, as we've seen. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And some countries do a better job than others. One way to respect minority rights is for the minority to run everything. But that's not really a preferred solution, right? Yeah, in this case, <laughs> that situation has been forcibly yes, uh, that is not a democratic the country. <laughs> it's not a democratic solution. Right. It's probably easier to argue against it when things aren't going well. But yes. in this case, in the case of Rwanda, there are just succeeding very admirably in all these different areas. Yeah, and it makes it seem like whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but and and yeah, that's been everybody's attitude towards Kagame. It's like, well, you're obviously a dictator. This is obviously not a democracy, but like you're delivering the goods for everybody, seemingly. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure the Tootsies get more of everything. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably true, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Rwanda, it's in the books, and I guess uh, in the wave file in our case. All right, 
Talk to you next week, my man. All right, Steve. Talk to you next week, dude. Yep. Bye.